You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. The story is told of a very wealthy man, and he was one time asked about the reason for his wealth to explain how he became so rich. And so he told the story uh, that people were asking him to tell about how he made his riches. He said this way, when I was a young man, I had just gotten married, and I was dirt poor. I had nothing. Uh, Those were tough times, but you know, I was energetic, and I took my last nickel, and I used that nickel to buy an apple, and I spent the whole night, stayed up all night, polishing that apple, making that five-cent apple look amazing. It was shiny. It was a thing of beauty. The next day, I went out, and I sold that apple on the street corner for a dime. And then I took that dime, that 10 cents, and I bought two apples. And I went home that night, and I polished all those apples. And the next day, I sold those two apples for 20 cents. And then I took those 20 cents, and I bought four apples. And then I polished those apples. And the next day, I sold those for 40 cents. And I took that 40 cents, and I bought eight apples. And I went on this way until I had $1.60. And that's when my wife's dad died and left me $10 million. Now that basically sums up what it means to be a Christian. You know that? I think I'm done. I'm just going to. No, okay. So to be a Christian is this. It means to be a Christian is to have been made rich, not by your own efforts, but by an incredible, undeserved gift. You see, all of our efforts to be good, to be good enough, to work hard, to to be religiously observant, let me tell you this, they can never be enough. It's like polishing apples and trying to get rich, right? But by the grace of God, because of what Jesus did for us, we can be rich with that which is truly wealth. You see, we can have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And today in our study, we come to a place in the book of Acts which is considered a turning point and a centerpiece of this book. And more importantly, I would say this, that the events we read about here were a watershed moment in the history of Christianity, and they're, they're pretty important. A controversy had been brewing in the early church, and nothing less than the gospel itself was at stake in this argument. The title of today's message is, A Defining Moment. And here are the two things we're going to see in this section. First, we're going to see, we're going to talk about the nature of the gospel. And the second thing we're going to do and talk about is this, grace and graciousness, okay? So the nature of the gospel and grace and graciousness. Let's begin by talking about the nature of the gospel. As we come into Acts chapter 15, let let me remind you of where we're at in the history of the early church in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas... They recently got back from their first missionary journey. They had been sent out by their church in Antioch. And they had been sent and commissioned to take the good news of what Jesus Christ had done and who he was, what he had done to save us. They took this good news to the island of Cyprus and to what is now modern-day Turkey. And everywhere they went, every city they came to, they established churches. They told people about Jesus. They started churches. And those churches that were established, they were mostly made up because of where they were located of uh, various ethnicities. There were some Jewish people in them because there, was, there were Jewish minorities in all the towns there in the Eastern uh, Roman Empire. Uh, but because of where they were, the majority of people in these churches were what Jews referred to as Gentiles, which simply means anybody who's not a Jew, right? They were Greeks, Romans, 
Africans, local indigenous peoples. Now, most of us hear that, and, and we would say, that's spectacular. That's awesome. Who cares what somebody's ethnicity is? The important thing is that they're coming to Jesus and being saved. And if you would say that, you would be correct. The only problem is that not everybody saw it that way. And check out what happens here in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. See, Christianity was born in a very Jewish setting. The Bible tells the story of how at the beginning of human history, sin entered into the world and created a problem, a big problem, corruption, death, separation from God. These became the reality of life for all people. The dark cloud of sin and death descended and settled upon all of creation. But God, because of his love for us, refusing to give up on us even though we had rejected him, he set about working a plan, a plan of redemption, a plan of salvation to save us from the curse of sin and death that we brought upon ourselves. So that rather than being separated from God and having to die, that we could know God and live. And that plan to save us and redeem us Uh, The fallen creation was this. God promised he would send a savior, a man who was like no other man who had ever lived or whoever would live again because that man would actually be God incarnate. And part of this plan, as part of this plan, God created a nation. He created a nation. He started with one man, Abraham. He said, Abraham, I want you to follow me and I'm going to give you some kids and all your kids are going to know me. And he said, here's the purpose of this nation I'm creating. He said, this nation is going to be my emissaries to the world. With this, to this nation, I will communicate my plans. And this nation will record them, and they will protect them, and carry them throughout all of history. And that nation was Israel. And the members of this special nation had a sign, a mark that they bore, marking and signifying that they belonged to this special group of people. And that sign was circumcision. And when the Savior did come, of course, his name was Jesus. He came through the Jewish nation, but he came as Savior of all people in all the world. And that much was clear to everybody. The Jewish people knew that. The question really was this. What does a person need to do in order to receive this salvation that Jesus came to bring? Right, Jesus came as Savior of the world. He lived a holy life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose again on the third day, overcoming death. But the question is, what must you, what must I do to receive that salvation that Jesus came to bring, that he earned for us? That is the question which is at the heart of the debate that we're reading about here in Acts chapter 15. And this question It couldn't be more important. It's not even possible to have a more important question of what must a person do in order to receive the salvation that Jesus came to give. This is not a side issue. It's not a peripheral issue. This question gets to the very core of Christianity. It gets to the heart of the nature of the gospel, which is the central message of the entire Bible. The question is this. How is a person made right with God? Now, there are some people who think that you're made right with God just simply by being born, right? Like you're born and everybody's right with God automatically. Other people might say, well, you know, uh, you're probably right with God as long as you haven't committed a felony, right? As long as you haven't done something really extreme, then you're probably right with God. 
But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are born out of sorts with God. That's how we're born. The Bible says that we're born out of sorts with God and we need to be brought into a right relationship with God. And how does that happen? Well, what Paul preached was that that happens simply by putting your faith in Jesus, in who he is and what he did for you on the cross. As he bled and died on your behalf out of love for you with the penalty of your sin placed upon him on the cross. That is what makes you right with God. Trusting and believing that what Jesus did was effective to save you personally. But these certain men from Judea that we read about here in verse 1, they said, no, that's not enough. What Jesus did was important. It was a good start. But by itself, it's not enough. You've got to add to it. You've got to add to it. First, circumcision. And then, coming under the law of Moses. And if you don't do these things, they said, you cannot be saved. It is not enough to just believe. That's what they said. You need Jesus plus other things. Plus this whole list of other things in order to be acceptable by God. You know, the very nature of the gospel is in question here. There are two divergent views of what is the gospel. And there was a growing division amongst the Christians because of this question. And a lot of it stemmed from the fact of Christianity's roots in Judaism. The very first Christians, as we've read in the book of Acts, they were all Jews. And as Jews, they were all circumcised. They all followed the law of Moses, which included ceremonial laws. It included dietary laws found in the Old Testament. And these early Jewish Christians, they considered themselves Jews. Absolutely. For them, to believe in Jesus was an inherently Jewish belief. Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises of God through the Jewish prophets and through the Jewish scriptures. For them, to be a Christian was to be a Jew. And so they would put it this way, that not all Jews are Christians, but all Christians are Jews. That was the way they thought. And yes, the Messiah, yes, Savior of all the nations, sure. But to believe in the Messiah is to believe in the entire framework of Judaism. And to believe in the framework of Judaism, guess what? That makes you a Jew. And if you're going to be a Jew, well, then here's what you do to become a Jew. You need to be circumcised. You need to adhere to the law of Moses, which means, bummer of all bummers, no more bacon, no more pork chops, no more lobster. It means keeping all the Jewish customs and rituals. And as the gospel began to expand out beyond the Jewish populated areas, this became more and more of an issue because more and more non-Jewish people were coming to faith in Jesus as their Savior and they were being baptized as Christians without also becoming Jews. In Antioch, there was a whole church full of these people and they were sending out missionaries to spread their version of the gospel. And, and this alarmed and disturbed those people in Jerusalem who had held out saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so these Judaizers, as they were called, they came up to Antioch. That's some 300 miles. Imagine 300 miles walking or riding a, a, a horse or something. You know, they came up 300 miles a long way from Jerusalem to Antioch on a mission to put an end and set these people straight with their version of the gospel. 
So here's what happens in verse 2. It says this, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Do you know what no small dissension and dispute means? It means they had a great big fight. They had the fight, right? Like, they were upset. These guys from Jerusalem come in. They start telling people in Antioch that they're not actually saved because they're still eating pork chops. And Paul and Barnabas get upset. They get angry. I mean, think about it. On one level... Paul and Barnabas must have taken this personally. They just got back from a missionary journey, risking their lives to take the gospel to these people. And now these people come along. It's like, are you saying that all that work we did in Cyprus, all the work we did in Galatia, that was all just a big waste of time? Like we, were, we founded fraudulent churches. Is that what you're saying? that we misled all of those people, that we told them a false gospel, we gave them a false hope because even though they've turned from idols to the living God, even though they put their faith in Jesus and what he did for them, they're actually not saved. They're not right with God because they still like to eat lobster. Right? They were upset because in their mind, this wasn't a matter of a difference of opinion. In their mind, this was a perversion of the gospel. That's what Jesus, I mean, think about this. Here's Jesus hanging on the cross. And with his dying breath, what does he say? He says, it is finished. Everything that needed to be done in order for you to be saved, I did it. It's done. Job complete. And now these guys come along from Jerusalem. And what are they doing? It's like a slap in the face to say, no, Jesus, you're wrong. It's not finished. In fact, there's more that needs to be done. We need to help you finish it. That was very insulting to Paul and Barnabas. Now, what was at stake here was the truth of the gospel and the future of the church. There are two divergent views of the gospel that are clearly incompatible. This is not something where we can say we can just agree to disagree. Now, there are many things where we can do that secondary issues, but this is not a secondary issue. This had to be settled according to the scriptures once and for all. And so we read in verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. You can see that this is going to be a defining moment this council in Jerusalem is going to be a defining moment in the history of Christianity. We really hope that they get it right. Let's read from verse 3 in Acts chapter 15. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed, I'm sorry, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, which brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. So as Paul and Barnabas told people about what God had been doing amongst the Gentiles, how people who at one time had lived in pagan idolatry were now turning their hearts to the living God. They were being filled with the Holy Spirit. They were living lives of honor and glory to God. People rejoiced to hear that. But then these guys came along, and they're like Debbie Downer, right? Like, right? like they're like a wet blanket, and they say, yeah, that's nice and all, but they need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Now, notice who these people were. Verse 5 tells us that they were Christians who used to be Pharisees. You guys remember the Pharisees? 
right? The Pharisees were the most devout, most hardcore Jews. They devoted their lives to trying to keep the law of Moses perfectly down to the smallest detail. And if there was one thing that Pharisees believed, it was that you could be justified before God through perfect morality and religious observance. Now, even though we see that the Pharisees were some of Jesus' biggest opponents during his ministry, apparently, as we see here, after Jesus' death as resurrection, many Pharisees became believers. They became disciples of Jesus, which is great. But the thing is, the old habits die hard, don't they? And these former Pharisees are leading the charge, arguing that salvation cannot be by grace through faith alone. That's not enough. Rather, it must be Jesus plus a list of other things that you need to do to justify yourself before God. Verse 6, we read this. The apostles and elders gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. Now, can you imagine this? They're having this council, and they're going back and forth. There's much debate. There's debate on both sides of the issue. You know, people saying, well, let me, you know, advocate for the other side of the issue. Let me see how this goes. They were sharing Bible verses, remembering, well, remember when Jesus said this? Remember when Jesus said that? And finally, Peter stands up, and here's what he says in verse 6. He says, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter reminds them of the story that we read a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter 10, where Peter shared the gospel with a family, uh, the family of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And at that time, we read in Acts chapter 10, while Peter's still speaking to them, before he gets to all the stuff that they need to do, which he fully believed at that time, they need to be circumcised. They need to keep the law of Moses. While he's still talking about Jesus, they believe by faith in that gospel. They embrace the gospel by faith. And as he's still talking, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and and that was kind of it, right? Much to his surprise. God accepted these people and they believed by faith without ever having done any of the other Jewish ritual things. God gave them the Holy Spirit, kind of his, his stamp to say, these people are mine, just as he had done with the Jewish believers. God accepted them and cleansed their hearts by faith. Not by circumcision, not through Mosaic law, just by faith. And so Peter says, if these things are obviously unnecessary for salvation, then why should we place this burden on them? You know, each of the different customs of the Jews, from ceremonial cleansing to the Sabbath to uh, circumcision, each of these things had a purpose and it had a significance for the Jewish people. And here's what it was. Each of these things was an outward action which pointed to a spiritual need which would be met by the Messiah. Let me explain. Ceremonial cleansing. This is part of the Mosaic law. The idea of clean and unclean things. You know what that did? It ingrained in the Jewish person's mind the fact that our default setting as humans 
is to be unclean. But the problem is this, in order to have fellowship with God, in order to have fellowship with other people, we must be clean. And so the question is, how do we become clean? Now physically, that's easily remedied. You wash your hands, you do some, some ritual cleansing, and you avoid unclean things. Done. But there's a bigger problem, isn't there? What about the heart? What about the mind? How do you deal with the uncleanness that is below the surface? How do you deal with the uncleanness within? What can be done about that? With circumcision. What does it signify? It signifies that you belong to God. That he's your God and you're loyal to him. The thing is, just like any outward sign, anybody can have a a mark on their body. That doesn't necessarily mean there's a heartfelt reality in their life. And so what we need, and the Bible even says it this way, what we really need is circumcision of the heart. Okay, with the Sabbath. It, It ingrained in the person's mind the need for rest. But yet, here's the thing. All the weekends, all the vacations in the world, they can never give you the deep sense of rest that you truly long for deep down inside. Rest in your heart. Rest in your soul. All of the Jewish customs, they were ordained by God and they had a purpose. They whetted a person's appetite and they told them that this is what the Messiah will bring you. He will cleanse you. He will bring you true rest. He will make you a new person. He will transform you on the inside. Paul the Apostle puts it this way. He says those things, speaking of Jewish rituals, those things were shadows of what was to come. But the reality is found in Christ. We would put it this way. We would say those things were foreshadowings of what is to come. In Christ. To the Galatians, Paul would write, For me, the law was a teacher, it was a mentor which led me to Christ. And here's the point if all these rituals, if all these customs were actually meant to prepare people's hearts for Jesus before he came, now that he has come, they're no longer needed, they're not needed for salvation because the reality which they foreshadowed is now here. It would be kind of like this. If you came home from being away for several days and your husband or your wife was walking up to the front door to greet you as you walked towards the house, uh, but instead of embracing you as they got close, they fell down on the ground and they became obsessed with your shadow, right? This kissing your shadow, talking to your shadow, asking your shadow what they can do to make it comfortable. And here you are, the reality But all the attention is being focused on your shadow. That's just weird, right? Now these Jewish customs, they foreshadowed what the Savior was going to do. How he would cleanse us to make us able to have fellowship with God. How he would give us true rest in our souls. How he would transform us and make us into his people. I love what Peter says in verse 11. Check it out. He says this. Our hope is that we, we Jews, might be saved in the same way that they are. He's switching it around, isn't he? Because the Jewish people would generally say, well, maybe those Gentiles can be saved like us. Peter's switching around. He says, you know what? I hope we can be saved like them. You know how they're saved? They're saved by God's grace, through faith in God's grace, because of what Jesus did for us. That's the way we're saved, just like those guys. Not even by our keeping of the law. Let's read from verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. 
And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. For it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. Therefore, we'll read that next. James says, he seems to be the one presiding over this meeting, and he says here in verse 19, he says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. After he makes these few statements, we see there he pronounces a decision. It seems that he is the one presiding over this meeting. Now, James here, he is quoting from Amos and Jeremiah. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, guys, you know what? If you look at the scriptures, this is what God has been telling us from day one that he was going to do. Amos foretold a time when God would come and rebuild the fallen tent of David. And he said at that time, Gentiles, not Jewish converts, but Gentiles who God calls by his name will come to him. And he says, this is that time. He says, in Jesus, this is fulfilled. God has visited us. And in Jesus, God has reestablished the fallen tent of David, which is, speaking of the Davidic monarchy. He says, that's Jesus. And now look, Gentiles are coming to God as Gentiles, not as converts to Judaism. That's what was prophesied would happen. This matter of the nature of the gospel, it's settled, he says. It's clear, salvation is not by anything that we do to earn it. It's by simply having faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. All of us are born out of sorts with God. You can't get right with God just by trying to be a good person because you'll never be good enough. But here's the hope of the gospel, that God has done it for you through Jesus at great cost to himself because that is how much he loves you. What a defining moment this was in the history of Christianity. What this means for you and me is this. You can finally get off the roller coaster. When you really understand the gospel, what it means for you is that you can get off the roller coaster. And what I mean by this, by that is this. As long as you think that your standing before God is based on your performance, then you will perpetually be on the roller coaster. When you're doing good, you're reading the Bible, keeping yourself, yourself pure, you're doing all the right things at all the right times, then guess what? You feel great. You feel ecstatic. You feel close to God. Uh, you feel like God accepts you, that God's happy with you. But then, guess what? Then you fall. It's like being on the roller coaster going down. You mess up. You fail. And now you feel like you've fallen out of good standing with God. And up and down this roller coaster goes. That's how many people live. Because even though they believe in Jesus, they still don't really understand the gospel. Let me tell you this. If there's anything we learn from the Jewish Christians from a Pharisaical background, it's this. It is completely possible to be a Christian and still not really understand the gospel. The message of the gospel is that your standing before God isn't based on what you do or don't do. It's based on what Jesus did for you. And that work is finished. And that means you can get off the roller coaster. You don't have to live in the constant up and down, feeling close to God and then feeling distant from God. Your standing before God is secure because the work of salvation is finished by Jesus on your behalf. But the objection that comes to this always is this. Well then, so does that mean 
that we can just do whatever we want, right? We can just go hog wild like it's, uh, you know, spring break or something. And that brings us to another, the next thing we see here in Acts chapter 15, and that is grace and graciousness. Let's read from verse 19. Therefore, my judgment, James says, is that we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from those ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim his name, and he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, let me just stop here. Did you guys catch that? That seemed weird to you at all? Okay, here's what James says. We're not going to tell them to keep the rituals of the Jews except for these rituals of the Jews, right? Like, what was that, right? Like, uh, we're not going to tell them to keep the Jewish customs except for these Jewish customs. Wait a second. What's this all about? Well, what's going on here is actually something that's very beautiful. It's a key part of Christian love, and that's this. It's laying down your rights that you have out of love and concern for other people. Because here's the thing, after answering that first question, the question of the nature of the gospel, there's still one more question that that brings up, and that's this. If Gentile Christians don't have to keep the ritual laws of Judaism, well then how can Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians ever have fellowship together? Because the one of them feels that they have the freedom to do a particular thing, but the other one feels that that thing is defiling, that it's crushing, that it's bad. How can they ever sit around a table together? How can they ever be one? How can they ever have fellowship? Furthermore, as James mentions, in every city, there's a Jewish synagogue. And so the recommendation is that the the Gentile believers should choose freely to abstain from certain things which the Jews find particularly offensive out of love and respect for the Jewish people around them, both inside and outside of the church. In other words, if you are in Christ, you are not under the law, but in Christ there's a new law, and that law is the law of love. So out of love for other people, you set aside these freedoms. You're saved by grace, but you're called to live graciously and act graciously. And here's why. Because your life can either be a stepping stone or a stumbling stone for other people coming closer to God. Your life can either be a stepping stone or a stumbling stone for other people coming closer to God. Choose to be a stepping stone. The four things they ask them to abstain from are these. Meat sacrificed to idols, which was very common in that day because a lot of the meat would be cooked during these sacrifices and they would sell it or it would be cut during the sacrifice. They'd sell it at a discounted price. So meat sacrificed from idols, they said don't eat that. Uh, They said, abstain from sexual immorality. Number three was, abstain from eating things that have been strangled. And the fourth one was from blood. Now, each of these things refer to specific things that are mentioned in the Levitical law, the law of Moses. In the case of sexual immorality, now, you might think, well, wait a second, that's a moral issue, right? I mean, shouldn't everybody abstain from sexual immorality? Well, most likely, because of the context, What this is referring to is not just sexual immorality in general, but a specific regulation found in Leviticus 18, which is, by the way, where the other things are also found that are mentioned here. Leviticus 18 prohibits marriage between siblings and cousins. That's something that Gentiles didn't think was a very big deal. 
And so the other three things are dietary. A kosher diet isn't just about what foods you eat or don't eat. A kosher diet's also about how those foods are prepared. You know, in Hungary, sometimes people used to ask me about this verse. Because one of the things they like to eat there in Hungary is fried pig's blood. I know you're like, what? Is that like from a, is that from demon worship? No. It's just, they just really love pigs over there, and they love pig's blood. And so they'll cook pig's blood in a pot. So here's how they do it. They put it in a pot with some onions, and then it kind of like, as it gets warm, it coagulates. And it's kind of like, you remember gushers? They're kind of like bloody gushers, right? Just get that picture in your mind. This is pretty much the most unkosher meal that is humanly possible, right? We're just going to fry up some pig's blood, right? And so uh, these Hungarians would, would read this, and they'd ask me, you know, does that mean that I can't eat that anymore? And I would say, I don't know why you want to eat that in the first place. <laughs> but unless you have some Jewish friends who are going to be offended by it, then I think you're, you're in the clear here. But the easiest illustration in our day is alcohol, isn't it? Because there are some of you here, you like to drink a good wine, or you like to drink a beer, and you do it in moderation, and you are within your biblical rights to do that. Now, people might argue against the wisdom of doing that, but no one can say that that's inherently sinful if it's done in moderation, right? But what if others of you here don't enjoy that freedom? In fact, your conviction is that Christians should have nothing to do with alcohol because there's nothing redeeming about it. There's nothing good about it. Maybe you used to live in a lifestyle that was characterized by alcohol consumption where it was a big part of your life and it led to a lot of problems and God brought you out of that. That's part of your story of how God saved you. Maybe you grew up in a home with alcoholic parents and you've seen the crushing effects of alcohol and you don't want anything to do with it. And you can't see how any Christian would ever want anything to do with that. Now, you who feel you have the freedom to drink a glass, what if the person that you sit across the table from in fellowship, what if for them, one sip is going to turn into a bottle, is going to turn into a binge, and they're going to wake up three days later in a different state with a new tattoo, Right? Are you still going to put that bottle out just because you can? Just because you have the right to? Just because you can make a case for it that biblically, I'm not doing anything wrong by doing this? Are you still going to put it out? See, we're saved by grace, not by our adherence to certain rules. But when you really come to understand the gospel, it changes the way you think about everything. Because the message of the gospel is that God did something for me that he didn't have to. He did it out of love. He did it for my sake. Out of love for you, God laid down his rights. He took on something he didn't deserve in order to give you something that you didn't deserve. See, we live in a society that is obsessed with ourselves, with our rights, with what we deserve. And let me tell you what, that self-obsession has a life-sucking effect on us. It makes you a shell of a person. You know that we are called to more than that through the gospel? We're called to more than that. We're called to live for something bigger than ourselves. We're called to live on a mission of helping bring other people closer to God. And in order to do that, sometimes that means doing what Jesus did for us, which is making other people a priority over ourselves. See, your life will either be a stepping stone or a stumbling stone for other people getting closer to God. Here's what he's saying. Choose to be a stepping stone. So in verses 22 through 29... We see the letter that they wrote to them, and it sums up 
what we just talked about. And they sent it off to the different churches to be personally delivered by messengers from this group. In verse 30, we read this. So they were sent off, and they went down to Antioch. This is Paul and Barnabas. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And check this out. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. When the gospel came back to Antioch, the people rejoiced, and they were encouraged. They had heard the gospel before, but it was now being reintroduced because the the other people had come and they had preached a different gospel, hadn't they? They had preached a gospel of works where you're standing before God is always up in the air. It's always dependent on you. It's not stable. It's contingent on your performance. But now the gospel of God's grace, of the finished work of Jesus is reintroduced to this congregation and they rejoice and they're very encouraged. And let me tell you this, each and every one of us, we need to constantly be reintroduced to the gospel. You never outgrow that. You never move on past that. There's no deeper stuff than that. The message of the gospel isn't only how you become a Christian, it's also how you grow as a Christian. It's the basis for how you live as a Christian in every part of your life. I put it this way. The gospel isn't just the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. It's the foundation for everything. You never outgrow it. You never move past it. We always need to come back to it to be reintroduced to it, to be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ. The most monumental, ground-shifting, life-changing message this world has ever known. As you go through life and you succeed at some things and you struggle at others, through the highs and the lows and everything in between, as you go through the different things that you will go through, What you need most is to be reminded of the gospel. And that is why week in and week out, as we teach the Bible here at Whitefields, my goal is not to give you fun facts about the Bible. My goal is not to fill your head with historical information and trivia. My goal from every text is to bring you to Jesus and reintroduce you to what he did for you. And what that means for you personally. And let me tell you, that's not very hard because that's what each and every part of every book of this Bible was designed to do. From the Old Testament foreshadowings to the New Testament stories. The gospel is the basis for everything in the Christian life. We can't have a conversation about what marriage means for Christians unless we start with the gospel. We can't talk about parenting or money if we don't start first with the gospel. Otherwise, it's just going to be, guess what? It's going to be rules. It's going to be moralistic things, a list of things that you've got to do. But if we talk about the gospel, about what Jesus did for us, then everything else is a response to that. Everything else flows from that, from the initiating love of God made visible in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus to save us. Not because we deserved it, but in spite of the fact that we didn't deserve it. How can we talk about suffering If we don't talk about the gospel, how can we talk about how the church should function? If we don't start with the gospel, we need to be reintroduced, reminded. We need to be re-gospeled every week, lest we drift away from it, lest we lose that foundation. It's what we need not only to become Christians, it's what we need as the foundation for how we live in every area of our lives. So that's my message for you today. Behold the gospel. That God in Christ took your sins upon himself. That you might be forgiven, redeemed, 
justified that instead of dying, you might live, and it is finished. Put your faith in the gospel today. Please stand with me and pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for the glorious message of the gospel. We thank you for your love for us, shown in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And Lord, may this message sink down deep in our hearts. May we be reminded of it. May we live in it. Lord, may we get off the roller coaster and truly rest in what you have done for us. And we thank you for that this morning. And as we sing this last song, Lord, we sing it in response to that message of the gospel. And with it, we say thank you. So Lord, may we keep this in our minds as we go out from this place. And may we declare that you are great. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.